This episode is brought to you by Elo, the Creators Network. You can go to elo.co or download Elo's iOS app in the App Store to explore, discover, and share your work on Elo's ad-free network. And with Elo's new Buy button, you can link a post directly to a product in your shop, empowering you to support yourself through your work and ideas. Elo, empowering creators around the world. This episode is also brought to you by Stocksy, the home of beautiful, inspiring, we won't use the word authentic, but you know what we mean, stock photos and videos. Before you cringe a little at the word stock, this collection is unlike any other library. Every photo and video is highly curated and hand-selected from real artists. So searching on Stocksy actually inspires new ideas instead of sucking the creativity out of you. No more trolling through pages of garbage wasting time. If you're looking to get inspired and are in the need of royalty-free photos or videos that don't suck, check out Stocksy.com and use the promo code TGD to get 20% off your first purchase. This is the Great Discontent Podcast. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at the Wythe Hotel in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, as part of TGD Live, a monthly interview event series. Your lovely and well-dressed host for the night was Tina Esmaker. Enjoy the show. This is TGD Live number 11, and uh, we have a wonderful show for you tonight. Uh, Koi Vin and Ryan Fitzgibbon are here. So without further ado, I'm going to bring up our first guest. Um, Our first guest is currently principal designer at Adobe, design chair at Wildcard, and co-founder of KidPost. He was previously co-founder and CEO of Mixel, which was acquired by Etsy, and served as design director of the New York Times Online and co-founder of the design studio Behavior. He is the author of Ordering Disorder, Grid Principles for Web Design, and was named one of Fast Company's 50 Most Influential Designers in America. He writes about design, technology, and culture on his blog, Subtraction. Please welcome Koi Vin. All right. I've been trying to interview you for years. (laughs) Uh, We've been emailing back and forth, and we finally made it happen. So I'm I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So I want to, I know you've talked a lot about how you're, path to what you're doing now has not been a straight path. Right. Uh, so I want to rewind a little bit and start at the beginning, um, which is rewinding quite a bit, actually. Sure. Um, will you tell us where you grew up and what forms of creativity you were drawn to early on? I grew up in suburban Maryland outside of Washington, D.C. And as a kid, I loved comic books and drawing and that led me to spend basically all my time in the art room in high school. And after that, to art school, where I discovered graphic design. And from graphic design, I discovered, you know, the internet and technology and et cetera, et cetera. And now we have Snapchat. I know, it's incredible. Uh, we skipped a lot of things there, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did we get here? A, hist- a brief history of the internet. Yeah, I wanted to ask, I know you studied illustration in college, and then, um, so graphic, desi- graphic design was a, a later discovery for you. Was That's there an right. aha moment when you decided that that was what you really wanted to concentrate on? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're growing up um, and spending all your time thinking about drawing, and you're in a you know, a good school, but not a school that's extremely savvy about all the different paths that, you know, uh, arts-minded people can take. 
you sort of think about, you know, what can I do that looks a lot like what I like to do every day, which is um, drawing. But as I got into illustration, I discovered that all the problems that I was really interested in illustration um, or in the realm of illustration were really design problems about problems around layout and composition and and conveying information and um, and like I think what I liked most about drawing comic books was the idea of packaging everything up with a cover and with a type and I liked making covers for for tape mixtapes and stuff like that too so um, ultimately I realized it was all about um, solving design problems and um, so you went to school in California and then you returned to the East Coast in the DC area and you began working in print, right? So tell me, like, what were the first few years out of school like for you? And at what point did you start to feel confident in your abilities as a designer? Yeah, so when I got out of school, I got a job at a very small ad agency near Washington, D.C. that did that specialized in real estate, <laughs> which was not... Dream job. Yeah, actually, not exactly what I dreamed about in school, but you know, I was I was creating brochures and logos. I created a logo for for or created logos for commercial buildings. Like there was that wide hotel logo up there, and, and none of the stuff I created was anywhere near as cool as that. Um, uh, but it was, it, I mean, I I had an illustration portfolio, so I was at least getting to to work with type, to work with photographers and illustrators to, to, you know, design stuff. So that was a, a fine start for me. And it was also sort of under the radar, um, not particularly glamorous, not like in the, um, in a place where lots of people were looking. So it was a good, good way for me to sort of do an apprenticeship, so to speak. Yeah, I think that anonymity early on is really nice, even though we... Yeah, I had um, a ton of anonymity, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's good. It allows yeah. us to make mistakes and grow. Yeah, exactly. Um, because yeah. right now, you are not anonymous. You 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 make a mistake, everyone, right? For, yeah, right? I mean, that might be overstating my <laughs> influence. Like, I make plenty of mistakes that people are not aware of every day, so, but yes. But you don't yeah, write about those that. on your blog. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> um, so I know, so at some point you moved uh, to New York City, and was that, did you take work and move to the city, or did you come here with the intention of forging a career in the city? I, so after school, I got this job in, in, near Washington, D.C. just by accident, so to speak. And it kept me there a lot longer than I wanted to. Like my, my ambition had always been to go to New York because that, in my mind, was where the design industry was based. And I was trying to find a job from, from D.C. while keeping that, that job at the agency. Um, and it just wasn't working out. It wasn't, was, I wasn't getting any traction. And so I just decided I would have to go all in. So I quit my job and left my apartment. And I moved to New York. And luckily, I, I have some friends of the family who live in Westchester. And so they put me up for a month or so while I just pounded the pavement and got work and eventually got an apartment. And, um, you know, one thing led to another. Um, when you moved to New York, was that when your, your, the focus of your work changed to um, designing more for the web? And can you talk a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I came to New York in the middle of the first dot-com boom, which... Um, um, was it was just a, a huge there was a huge rash of 
startups and agencies all over New York and you almost couldn't get a job doing, um, you know, some kind of internet work. And if you had some, some kind of design skills and if you'd ever written any HTML, you were, you know, you were automatically like a web developer or something. So, um, yeah, so I got a job at an agency and, um, that was a great, you know, second part of my education, like learning about all different kinds of, of industries and about, um, web development processes and ultimately software development processes. And, um, um, and I never really went back to print from there. Yeah. And then, and then you went to the, the New York times, um, yeah. In, I think it was around 2006 or so. Yeah, it was 10 years ago. I can't wow. believe that. Yeah. That's incredible. And you, um, you, you, when you were there, you helped them basically rethink their digital platform, right? Correct? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I went there at a time where when I started, it was the, the website, NewYorkTimes.com, and all of the digital properties were actually a separate business unit from the newspaper. And not long after I went there, I mean, through no influence of my own, um, they decided to bring them all back into one company and essentially integrate the two operations. So it was a really perfect time for people who are, you know, digitally oriented to have a lot of influence over sort of charting the future. And so... Um, I was just sort of like in the right place at the right time for um, lots of change happening that I could take credit for. Yeah, I was going to ask, were you, were you actively leading that change and, and help, helping push that forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I ran the, the product design group, essentially. And so we, um, we were a part of you know, just about every conversation that took place um, you know, in terms of building out new businesses online on the newyorktimes.com platform or, you know, doing the, the first work on mobile, Kindle, you know, iOS, Android, um, just doing all kinds of different kinds of experiments, all that stuff. That's pretty insane to, to be there yeah. during that time and, and during all of that change. It, it was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you left there, um, you were about there for about five years mm -hmm. and you left, I want to actually quote, um, something that you wrote on your blog when you left, because I have a question um, about it. Uh, you said, um, to put it mildly, the time's early faith in, in me changed my career. As I prepare to leave, there are so many opportunities available to me now that would have been impossible for me had the times not hired me almost half a decade ago. I handed in my resignation with considerable regret, I have to say, as I still feel an abiding passion for the New York Times as a force for good in the world. Um, so my question is, how did you know it was time to leave? Um, yeah, so I think there are basically two kinds of people who work at the New York Times, people who go there for less than five years and then people who go there forever. <laughs> and in my first couple of years, I thought, oh, I might be here forever because I really, really... It, first, it's an enormous privilege to play like this bit part in delivering some of the, the best journalism in the world. And second, you're just surrounded by incredibly, you know, experts, like subject matter, you know, like leaders um, from all over the world. And, um, and it's just really fantastic experience. But ultimately, I realized that like I'm not really 
like a journalist. I'm not a journalist at all. Um, I really enjoyed participating in the journalism and I, I am very grateful that, you know, they, they've respected a non-journalist's perspective, but like, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in journalism and that's basically what you would be doing. Um, and so, um, I had other passions that I wanted to pursue. I mean, I, I'm a designer first and, you know, at the time I was a journalist second, but like that, like I always was interested in, in design problems and journalism at the time just happened to be a very, very interesting design problem. Um, is there anything like, like maybe, um, your biggest takeaway or lesson from your tenure at the times? I'm, I'm sure there are many, but if there's, is there one Maybe one thing that comes to mind or something that has stuck with you from your time there? Um, I mean, there are many. I mean, I guess the thing that I think about the most is how incredibly hard it is to do content. And I, so I like all the yes. respect to you guys <laughs> for, for doing such a great job. I mean, content is, is fundamentally about having way more passion than, than opportunity. Like you've just got to really want to do content and and then find the opportunities to match the um that passion um especially in this climate where you know there's really not not the wind is really not at your back when you're when you're doing content so i I just saw the times which is doing such amazing journalism work struggle so so mightily on the business front and they were doing better than you know most other um you know, newspapers and, and, you know, legacy media organizations. Yeah, definitely. And so, um, since, since you left the times, you've, you've done a couple different things and the most recent chapter of your professional career is, um, with Adobe, you are principal designer at Adobe. So tell me, um, how, uh, you landed in that role and, um, what do you hope to contribute through your work at Adobe? Yeah. So I've been at Adobe now for a little bit more than a year. I, I originally started working with Adobe on a, an, an app called uh, Comp CC, um, which I wrote the initial proposal for through uh, friendships with uh, a bunch of folks at Adobe, and I started working with them, and um, and just really enjoyed the, the process. And after I left the Times, I did a startup called Mixel, which was a social media um, social media plus art kind of app, and. One of the things that that helps me understand about myself is that I'm sort of, I think, at, at my core, interested in the tools that creative people and designers particularly use, and how those tools influence the the kind of work we do and the way we think about our careers and and we think about you know the world around us. And so, working with Adobe on a, a design tool just really, really crystallized that for me. And you know, the more I talk to them and and better I understood the kinds of challenges that they were working on and the kinds of opportunities that were, they were facing, you know, it really struck me like, you know, this is a great opportunity. And, um, and so, uh, you know, after sort of flirting with them for a while, they eventually, um, made me an offer and I was able to, um, to start there, um, you know, last year, I've been working on a, a ton of different stuff, but overall it was, that opportunity to, to work on software for people, you know, like ourselves, like designers and creatives. Okay, if you've ever heard a podcast before, you've likely heard of MailChimp. But it really is true, MailChimp is the easiest way to send email newsletters. 
If you're looking to connect with an audience or grow your creative business, you've got to give MailChimp a try. It's easy to set up. It's easy to use. There are flexible design options that make it so simple to create a great looking campaign. And let's say you're putting on an event in Chicago and you only want to email people that are from Chicago. MailChimp's powerful automation and segmentation tools make this easy with just a few clicks. Plus, with MailChimp's mobile app, you can manage lists, add new subscribers, send campaigns, and view reports all while on the go. Getting started with MailChimp could not be easier. No expiring trials, no contracts, no credit card required. Just sign up and start emailing now. Go to MailChimp.com to create your free account today. Thank you, MailChimp, for supporting the Great Discontent Podcast. Now back to the show. I'm going to bring up our second guest now. Uh, He began his career as a communication designer at IDEO in San Francisco. After three years capturing insights for various design challenges around the globe, he moved to Australia to pursue his own venture in storytelling, ultimately launching the first issue of Hello Mister. In 2014, he moved to Brooklyn to continue independently publishing the biannual magazine, highlighted by New York Mag as part of the new generation of indie magazines. He has also served as co-chair of communications for the San Francisco chapter of AIGA and was named one of Print Magazine's new visual artists 15 under 30 in 2015. Please give a warm welcome to Ryan Fitzgibbon. Hello. All right. Hello. Well, you and I have something in common. It's not pink hair. <laughs> it's not. We're both from Michigan. Yeah. Which we're not going to talk about right now. No. Um, <laughs> Midwest, a fellow Midwesterners. Yeah. Um, I meet so many great people from the Midwest in New York. We all just flee and come here. <laughs> you robbed Michigan of blue votes. I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we all need to go back. Yeah, yeah. After this, we're all yeah moving back. We're starting a creative a commune for creative refugees in Michigan. Um, I'm gonna buy a mansion in Detroit. No, guys, you guys think I'm kidding? But I've actually talked about doing this before. So um, just putting it out there. If anyone wants to invest or fund that, um, come see me after the show. My pen's really hot. I've been signing a lot of petitions, so I'll sign that one. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, so yeah, I want to go back to the beginning of your story as well. Tell me a little bit about um, like how, to, how did growing up in Michigan influence your ideas about creativity? Um, I, I have this little story that I remember um, when I was maybe like eight or nine um, going on a road trip with my f- whole family um, and getting terribly lost as usual. And we were seemingly going in circles because I noticed uh, a billboard that um, I had seen just a while ago and my parents were like arguing. And and when I mentioned, like, I, I just saw that, you know, I think they stopped and smirked. And I, I think I, in retrospect, realized that I was visually aware of like what was happening, um, right? Like those like mm-hmm. symbols and all that stuff. Um, so that's, that's kind of like my early memory, but I actually wanted to go to school for, um, to culinary school. Um, so through middle school and high school, like I was on my road to, um, to culinary school, but, um, in high school I was fostered and met, um, this amazing, um, art teacher, um, who was this kooky, um, artistic lesbian butch 
amazing woman who just basically took me under her wing and like saw me, even though I wasn't out at the time or um, um, open with her. She she knew that like we'd be best pals, and um, she ran the um, communication department as well as the fine art department. So it was a very small operation, and um, she encouraged me to work for the school newspaper. And then I started doing like layout design and I was like, I think maybe I'll go to school for graphic design and that's where I ended up. And that's what you did? Yeah. You went to school at Grand Valley? Mm-hmm. Grand Valley State University? Um, and then, so then right after college though, you moved to San Francisco and started working at IDEO. Right. And then that's a big, how did you get that job right after school? <laughs> Because we all want to know. <laughs> I know. And so does my very unread um, LinkedIn message box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I I think some of the projects that I did in my final um, semester and in my thesis of my BFA were really touching on kind of what design thinking was in 2008, 2009. Um, and then, like, Midwest and Grand Rapids. I don't think a lot of people were thinking outside of what design could be. Um, and so w- w- the two projects that I was specifically focusing on were um, sort of the age of infographics and and how the message has to be, has to come first. And everyone was kind of, you know, spewing from this Wired magazine and Good magazine trend of, of creating fancy visuals that actually complicated information. Um, and my other um, project was um, on design thinking and sort of like um, crafting, you know, a more holistic view and approach on um, design solving a problem that may, may or may not have um, a physical or visual like outcome. And so I applied for an internship there and um, the internship sort of led to um, full time so you, you just you got your foot in the door and stuck around. Yeah, and I just um, and they liked you and hired you. Yeah, yeah. So it's not that easy, of <laughs> course. But um, I I um, was there for three months and kind of thrown into the deep end. And was part of the transition to San Francisco was also to go to grad school at um, the California College of Arts. And in the internship that I had at IDEO, um, two of my um, project leaders and, and colleagues were eventually my professors teaching um, design thinking at CCA. And it just didn't click as soon as I started school again that I was in the right place. And I I, I really felt that I needed to be um, doing it and not in a classroom learning about it again. So I dropped out and um, by chance they needed help on a project and um, I threw my hand up and I was there for another three years. Yeah, yeah. So you were there for the, that's. I wanted to talk about the transition. After three years at IDEO, you decided to leave and go out on your own. Um, what gave you the confidence? You know, three you were three or four years out of school by then. What gave you the confidence to quit your full time job and go out on your own and and start your own publication? Or did you just not think about? I don't it? know if I had the confidence. Um, I think that kind of came in stride, but I I, I kind of was feeling. Um, worn out by the the rhythm of the consultancy life and sort of the five week to you know three month projects um, in various industries which 
for some period of time can be really, can, you can gain a lot of energy from that and um, being able to bounce around industries and use different skills was really amazing, but I, it was also my first job. So I sort of went from graduating to this amazing experience w- working with some of the best designers and thinkers around um, and kind of felt that I needed to pursue something more more personal and just of my own um, accord. And so I kind of spoke about this, I've spoken about this in the past, but I've always kind of decided of looking back at the career decisions or being in school or not being in school, um, deciding whether I wanted to learn by absorbing and being around those people or learn by kind of starting and doing my own thing. So um, that was kind of the only decision I made. And I didn't really have the concept or the idea for the magazine until a few months being sort of clear of headspace for that. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask about the magazine. So so you started Hello Mister, which is a magazine about men who date men. And you started that in, tell me so, the year. So it was still in San Francisco at the time. And um, that's kind of where the kernel of the idea started. Right. It's a really personal story. And that's what I'd, I'd love for you to kind of share sure. about that. Yeah. I mean, being a visual designer and being someone who recognizes billboards and the effect that they have, um, I didn't feel a connection to the visual language and the the visual kind of identity that my gay community um, was publishing and putting out there, and especially what media was publishing for and about gay um, LGBT people. And so, you know, it was also 2010 and 11 when... um, Prop 8 was kind of the only thing being talked about in San Francisco and around the world. Um, and I just didn't relate to it. I mean, I was 23 or 24 and wasn't um, the fight that I was fighting at the time. Um, but yet every kind of visual underneath the headline on the front page of the newspaper was always the exact same. And I felt that that we were underserved and we could do a lot better um, and and so I started a blog and started pulling some people in who could kind of add their thoughts to how we could start, you know, building up a, a, a new identity and start creating more facets to it. Um, and then slowly but surely, I think the the momentum built because enough people felt the same way. Um, and I just kind of combined my skill set of mostly print design, um, with building a brand strategy, which kind of is how IDEO shaped me um, and launched the Kickstarter and all the kind of like tools to really sell it. Yeah, I was going to say, so you decided to go, you decided to quit your job, go into print when people were saying print is dead and do a Kickstarter versus taking on investment or finding funding otherwise. Um, did you were all of those choices like really considered? Like why print over publishing digitally? Why uh, crowdfunding over investment? Right. right. Um, all very considered, definitely. And the the print um, specific answer is because of the the newsstand. Really, I mean, going to Barnes and Noble myself as a teenager and trying to find something that related to me that was specific to LGBT people, it was 
hard to find or down in the bottom of the corner covered behind black plastic and and or it just didn't at face value look like me or or feel like me um and so i felt that print could be and would be the best way to shake that up and start being in places that could um break through into the mainstream and sort of rebrand that category um and also you know i traveled a lot with ido and spent 6 months in singapore and um brought a few of my favorite magazines um of the lgbt title and just never le- they never left my apartment because i felt too whatever um to take them out and so my my goal was always to the like the benchmark was always to create something that i could comfortably and other people could comfortably take on the public transit in singapore and that happens so much more um visibly in print um more than it could an app or or digitally yeah that's good um and you so you've just published you just put out your eighth issue right yeah number eight and um you have this wonderful community that has grown around the magazine and you guys yeah there and uh, you guys have also done events um and so tell me, I know that your your magazine means so much to your community. Um, I'm sure you get emails and notes or replies on socials all the time, people telling you what it's meant to them. Like, can you share, are there any stories that you can share about what yeah, you heard from readers? It, I mean, it happens, it's happened a lot this week. Um, but it, in the first few years, I've, I stopped counting how many coming out letters I got um, or requests from people to um, send it in um, a nondescript envelope so that their parents couldn't find it. Um, And those coming out letters and those letters of like deep personal significance of what this was providing to them just felt like I was getting a letter from myself, you know, and it felt so personal that people were relating to it in the way that I had hoped that they would. Um, and, and yeah, they still come and I'm not able to respond to all of them anymore, but I try. That's really wonderful. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit. I have some questions for both of you. Um, and so I want to talk about the role of design in today's world. And I want to talk about specifically about empathy and, um, Koi, I forget where I found this when I was doing research on the internet for the show. I don't know if it was written, if it was an interview gave or just something you said, but, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, this quote or something that, that you've supposedly said, uh, which I think you want to take credit for it. Um, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> is, um, empathy is the hardest thing uh, for designers to learn, but it's the most valuable skill. Mm-hmm. And so what I want to talk about is, you know, we hear the word empathy a lot, but what does it mean? And I think often we confuse it with the word sympathy, which really doesn't doesn't involve a shared perspective or shared emotions with our fellow human. Empathy is really all about that, sh- the shared feelings, um, shared emotions. And so um, you know, that's so much more power. Empathy is so much more powerful than, than sympathy, which is removed. Um, so how, I want to ask both of you, and um, some quoting you, Koi, we'll start with you. Um, how has practicing empathy made you a better designer? Well, I think it's, I, I think when you start out 
in design, you learn the, the sort of bread and butter skills of, you know, typography and, and composition and basically just lining shit up. <laughs> and then you real you quickly realize that like that only gets you so far. And, um, and especially when you're, you're doing work for products or like digital products or physical products, you've really got to understand and empathize with the person who's going to use it. And that's, that can take years, if not like a, a lifetime to, to master. Um, because, you know, for every product, like the, the users are so different and, and their circumstances are so different. And also the technology changes and the time changes and the, you know, the, the expectations change. So, um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I'm yeah. talking a bunch of stuff about no, empathy. Yeah, no, you know, you are. And I think, and you, you, you mentioned that it takes a long time to master empathy. Yeah. You've been working in design for a couple of decades. Yes. So ha- what has helped you be more empathic? Seeing how people use, you know, what you do is probably the first thing. Realizing that, um, for me, realizing that I'm not always right is also important. <laughs> That's something a lot of designers um, take a while to, to come around to. Um, and um, um, I think I think it's also just really important to sort of have a different set of assumptions than at least I had when I was young, younger assumptions that I, I, I think I, I basically assume, used to assume, um, that users, um, were generally going to be interested in the things that I was interested in. And it's not exactly a hundred percent true that, that they're not interested in what I'm interested in. It's just that, that, you know, there may be some overlap, but they're they're most interested in the things that they're interested in, mm-hmm. if if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's good. I think Ryan. it does, and I I uh, will add that um, being empathetic is just simply about being a good listener. I feel and and observing, and so I think that to your point, um, the way that we design for things is how is who it's for, and 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 how well we've listened to what they what they need and what they want whether they're directly telling you or not mm-hmm. um and i mean i kind of in creating hello mister was able to start with a momentum that i had that i felt other people um who felt like me wanted and so i was kind of designing for myself to begin and as it's evolved and, and grown I'm, I'm gaining back those skills of, of learning and, and observing to change course where needed. Um, but I think through the training of IDEO as well and being um, in the field for so much of the three and a half years that I was there, um, listening to people talk about what they really value when m- the kind of conversation goes where it will and as the designer and the research researcher, you have to be really great at gleaning the insights out of that. Um, and so, like empathy is the 
really boil down to, I, I feel, being a really good observer. I mean, it's interesting for me, for to would be interesting for me to hear from the both of you because you have these publications. I mean, I would assume you started the publications because they're about things that you're interested in, and then over time, it, there's a tension between what you're interested in and what your your readership, your audience, your community is interested in. So there's always, you're looking for the overlap, but it's always like, you know, there's probably always some, some um, what's the word I'm looking for, some give and take. Totally, and I and I can't speak for everyone, right? Yeah. And so the more voices that um, I include at the table and I include in creating the content that mm-hmm. is so king is eventually starts to cover more area. Um, yeah. 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 Are you asking me that? Should I answer? Uh, yes. Um, yeah. So I mean, starting. I, I don't. I, I feel like everyone here has maybe heard the origin story of TGD a billion times, or maybe I just feel like I've told it a billion times. But yeah, I mean, starting The Great Discontent was a very personal endeavor for um, my husband and business partner, Ryan, who is in the back working hard. Um, It was really something that we wanted to see in the world, and we were craving um, any kind of creative community that we could find. We were living in Michigan at the time and feeling very isolated, and creating TGD was a way for us to reach out to people who we um, admired or looked up to or who we wanted to connect with um, and it allowed us to ask them a lot of questions that we were struggling with at the time um, you know trying as we try to figure out our own creative paths um, and as time has gone on yeah that that has changed you know it's um, I think the spirit of TGD remains the same um, but we it's taken on different mediums, different formats. We have events now. We have a print magazine. We have a podcast. And as our audience has grown, yet yeah, you do have to reevaluate. I think, like like why are we doing this? Um, why are we creating this content? Why are we creating this community? Um, and also, yeah, think about how it's growing. And and um, you can't. You also can't be everything to everyone. So it is. There is that tension between. Um, like, what do I want to put out in the world that's meaningful to me and what what's meaningful to my community and where is the overlap between those two things? Did I answer your question? Great answer. <laughs> Tables have turned. All right. No, I, bring it on. Bring it on. Um, so last week was a really hard week for so many of us, and I think, um, I don't know about you guys, I don't know about all of you out, out in the audience, but I'm still feeling... Um, the weight of last week. And I think um, I'm just seeing a lot of, you know, there's a lot of discussion online about um, the function of design to influence change. Um, I I was reading an article on Design Observer. Um, uh, Jessica uh, Helfand and Michael Beirut wrote this. Um, and I want to quote this. And then I have um, some questions for us to talk about. Um, if you If you don't run away in the meantime. Just kidding. <laughs> Um, uh, they said, there is a case to be made that design is inherently an optimistic enterprise, a way of expressing confidence in the face of challenges, no matter how bleak. Designers understand this implicitly. We may not be in a position to control change, but we are at its most ardent and express, but we are its most ardent and expressive ambassadors. We may oppose an unthinkable political victory, but we remain deeply committed to seeking and serving real social progress. Designers often think of themselves as problem solvers, so let's start solving some problems. The voting may be over, but the work is just beginning. Um, And so my question for both of you, and maybe I'll start with Ryan this time, um, what opportunities do you see for design and designers 
to affect social change right now, either on a macro or micro level? And I know that's a big question, um, and you're welcome to just speak from your own experience in terms of what you've been thinking about. Yeah. Um, I think, speaking from Hello Mister and just what I've seen as well just in this last week, the importance of visibility and being seen is enough for some people who may not know how to initially um, get involved or aren't in a place to join the protest. But coming out, being um, vocal and using the voice that you have, I feel is also the role that design plays um, in creating some of the many beautiful and important signs that we've seen through the protests that are starting to change things and creating a wall of post-its in the subway system. That's design and that's being visible in small forms, but I think can ripple. Um, and the idea of creating a magazine for and about gay men primarily and placing it in hotel rooms and placing it in retail shops and in places where people may never go out of their way to be affected by content like that of Hello Mister um, is, is really important. And over time, that form of activism will get louder. And Koi, do you what opportunities do you see for designers, designers to affect social change right now on a, a macro or a micro level? Uh, or, think, or are there any? Yeah, I think that's a really hard question. I, I mean, I respect Jessica Helfen and, and Michael Barut a lot. I just don't know if it's actually... I don't want to be a downer. I just don't know if it's actually accurate to say design is inherently optimistic. I think if anything, design is just inherently opportunistic. <laughs> like we, people who are purely designers, I mean, people who, who are in roles that are purely designed generally are following the agenda of, of, you know, like enterprise and, you know, left to its own devices, enterprise is not inherently op optimistic most of the time. I think there are great opportunities for designers to be, to sort of seize a day and be more optimistic, but it generally takes designers, it requires designers to be more entrepreneurial or more journalistic or take on other crafts. And so the, I think there's, there's a great tendency in, in the entire design industry though, just to talk to to preach to the converted, to talk to people who already agree with you. I mean, I think that's the default state for most most of the design. And so it's really hard for me to, to say that design by itself is going to be able to affect the change that that is necessary right now. So, so sorry to bum everybody out. No, I mean, it's real. And that's like, that's what we're up here to do. We're up here to have dialogue and, and to, I mean, you guys got the show a week after the yeah. shit hit the fan. So I'm, yeah. I know. <laughs> um, it's, 
Yeah, I think this is important. I mean, this is this is a dialogue that I'm seeing all over Twitter, seeing on social media, where I think we are all. I mean, last week the political became very personal, and we are all now. No matter what we do for work, I think we're all now reevaluating, and and we're asked to make some tough decisions and think about. You know, I'm I'm thinking about you know my work is for the creative community at large, which embodies many different communities, many sub communities within that. And I'm thinking about you know what does that mean? What does that mean for my work? You know, um, and so I guess you know, to follow up, do you think that are we at a point in time where designers are are or need to reevaluate personal responsibility to their communities and in terms of what they contribute? Um, or is design just a job? Uh, I think, yeah, I, I do think it's time to reevaluate um, your personal responsibility to your community as a designer. I mean, I don't know if we need another, you know, like on-demand service that that employs, you know, hundreds of designers, like, like some of these these very well start um, funded startups do. I mean, that's hundreds of great design minds that are basically devoted to to sort of like optimizing for an economic equation that doesn't make sense for you know 98 percent of the, the, the country so um, it's it's um, again not to bum everybody out but yeah it's it, it, the, a very cold light has been sort of cast on like what we're all doing. Yeah, I, I think Ryan, do you have anything to add to that, or do you, do you feel like there is an inherent responsibility that we need to, um, you know, reevaluate as designers the work that we're doing and how we're contributing to our communities? Um, yeah, I mean, I would hope that um, the ones, the designers who knew that it was always there but didn't feel like they had an opportunity to, I would hope that they can start to see places to start stepping up and taking those responsibilities, um, even in the smallest ways, which, you know, can be the inclusion of more diverse people in campaigns and whatever that is, um, which have just been little drops, you know, in various um, PR pushes, but I feel like it needs to be more prevalent and I think that that can start with you know the creative teams and work its way up as an example yeah that's good yeah and, and this is obviously a big question not something that um, we're not up here because we're experts and we're going to solve this we're just <laughs> I think you know having some dialogue about what we've all been thinking about and reflecting on this week and I think it's just it's really just the beginning of reflection on on what's transpired and you know where do we go from here and we're all asking we're all asking that question and reconsidering what that means for our lives and our work. Um. And I'll just add, like, in some ways, I, I don't mean to say it's the fault of designers either. In some ways, like, the, the way the whole thing has been set up is, like, if you want to become a designer, you move to New York or San Francisco or maybe L.A. or Boston or Washington, D.C. You move to these coastal cities, and we're effectively, like, concentrating opportunity and influence and um if we really want to change the equation we need to to create 
you know, like opportunities um, in, you know, in these, in like Iowa or, you know, or Michigan or, you know, North Carolina or, or wherever, these places where people who may not even know about design, you know, just would never get the opportunity to, to become designers today. So um, it's, it's a much bigger question than designers alone can, can answer. But um, I think that's the fundamental change that needs to happen. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, um, it certainly makes us realize that, I mean, we are so lucky to live and work in New York um, because we really are in a bubble. And, and for the most part, the people I meet, you know, think similarly to me, you know, we're all pretty liberal and, and share a lot of the same viewpoints on most things. And I think um, you forget, you know, when I go home to Michigan to visit family, I, I, I do, it's like, whoa, not in New York anymore. Um, you just you just forget that you do live in a bubble, and I think um, you're totally correct in saying that we need to provide opportunities that aren't just in New York or L.A. or San Francisco. Yeah, and continue reaching back out to those places with the connections and that we have, and I, th I think the same is exactly true for queer people who flee and find, you know, refuge in major cities and we create such a divide between um, places where it's really hard to be gay and places where we are here in the upper center. And I think it's always been my mission, but it needs to be dialed up a lot to continue reaching back and serving the communities that don't have access to all of the comforts that we have here. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, so, uh, something else, I guess, that's been on my mind um, that I'm that uh, that others are seeming to echo is this kind of sentiment about you know art and um, like it's similar to design. You know, can design really affect social change? Can it make a difference? And is art important right now? You know, should we? I've seen a lot of things about okay, we need to like just harness our energy and our anger and and get to work. I've seen other people say you know take your time. Um, to process through this, and I actually I wanted to reference. Um, there was a tweet from um, Reggie Watts, who's a an LA-based comedian and performer. Um, this tweet incited a lot of reactions. Um, he said, "Playtime is over now. It's time to crank up love and empathy to 110 percent and make some incredible, fearless art." This is a direct order. Um, I think some people were resonating resonated with that and were you know saying yeah i totally 100% agree like we need to channel this energy into art others were saying you know you need uh, that others were less hopeful about the power of art to affect change and encouraging people to um you know take a, a different more direct course of action um so do you, what what do you see like right now what what is the role of art and creativity and can art can art affect change? Can it provide entry points for dialogue among people with differing opinions? Can it um, can it create safe spaces for us to for our communities to come together and talk about things that we couldn't otherwise talk about? Um, do you see a role for art right now in the world? Go for it, Ryan. Yes, I see I you raising so. up your mic. I hope so. Um, yeah, I do. I do think that there is great power in art, and I think thinking of um, something like music and creating um, lyrics or an album that can help someone feel 
um, heard and feel like they relate to um, someone relates to them for the first time or a TV series um, where people are represented that haven't been. I feel like that's form of art that I think needs to continue and I think all forms of, of self-expression that ultimately other people hopefully relate to is positive and constructive. Um, uh, again, not to bum everybody out, but <laughs> there were about a bajillion artists lined up, you know, behind the Democratic candidate, and I think there was Scott Baio lined up behind the Republican candidate. So, um, so we, we, I think you have to to take it with a grain of salt, like the the influence that that artists can have, which is not to say that the influence is zero. But I, th I think the, the problem with art and design, again, is that the, we worry a lot about what the message of the work is, and we worry less about who the who the intended audience is. I mean, we just sort of let that you know fall to the defaults, and it's usually people like ourselves. Especially, you know, the more rarefied the art goes, the, the narrower the audience is. So, um, you know, if if art, I think art art certainly does have the potential to affect change. It just has a bad track record of doing it, and if it's, if that track record is going to get any better, it has to really think carefully about how to reach different audiences going forward. Yeah, I know. I think that's an excellent point in terms of art and design. Is that we are kind of preaching to the choir in the sense that we're sharing we're sharing work for the people who they're already resonating with that work. Um, they're already buying into it. Um, so, so how how is it possible? How is it how is it possible for us to create art and design? For people who um, maybe don't, who, who don't have the same viewpoints and perspectives on the world, and, and put that out there in a way—is that going back to the whole empathy thing? Um, yeah, I think it goes back to the empathy thing. I think also, I mean, I'm obviously I'm guilty of this, maybe longer than most people in this room, but just living and working and thinking about people in New York is not going to help. <laughs> you know, it's like you have to. If you want to affect change for the whole country, you're probably going to have to, you know, move to a quote-unquote flyover state and, and do it, you know. Yeah, I think that that's to the point earlier that that kind of change is is going to be felt the closer it is to the people who we want to reach. And I've seen so many of these different um, versions of these posts with people saying, you know, um, don't move to Canada, move back to the Midwest. Right. Um, be their neighbors, play your music so that they can hear your lyrics, cook your food at their potlucks and attend their churches and let them see you. That's the greatest form of protest, I, I feel. It, making them not necessarily uncomfortable, maybe at first, but eventually... It, build enough of a relationship and I mean, I, I don't know, I'm not going to try to solve it, but that's kind of like, I feel is it needs to be in their face in however subtly or not so subtly way. Yeah, I think that's a good point that um, 
you know, it's a lot harder to think of someone as other or it's it's easier when you don't have a personal relationship with someone to kind of discount their views. And if you're in a relationship with someone and there's mutual respect and caring, it's it's a lot, um, it's a lot, maybe, I wouldn't say easier, but you know, maybe both parties are more open to having dialogue and, and hearing each other and really listening, um, not with the intention of persuading the other person to believe what they believe, but just with the intention to listen and understand. And I think, um, I think that art and design does have the power to do that, to really, um, to not really provide a resolution, but to ask questions and to help people ask questions and to help people find common ground. Um, but I am, I am an optimist, so I could be wrong. <laughs> um, I'm an optimist too, despite everything I've said up until then. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your viewpoints. <laughs> um, so at the last question I have for you guys um, is, you know, it, it has been it has been a long week and it's been, you know, I think tonight has been somewhat, it's been a heavier conversation tonight than we normally have at these. Uh, there's normally a lot more laughter, although there was, there was some good laughter tonight. Um, but I think what we're all struggling, uh, we're struggling to grasp at uh, some kind of hope Um what what is giving you guys hope and strength right now? Because I want to know. Because <laughs> I need I need some. <laughs> Michelle Obama's Vogue cover. <laughs> I have yes that. <laughs> Thank you, Annie Leibovitz. Those yeah, incredible. I mean, I would say that. Yeah, I mean, I lived through the you know George W. Bush administration and it seemed really dark then. Um, and then I think we had a great a great resolution from that for eight years. And so, you know, it seems much, much darker now. But, you know, um, what's the saying? Like this too shall pass. And yeah, demographically, um, you know, statistically, you know, everything supports, you know, what what Barack Obama says, which is like the the, the arc of freedom is long, but it bends in the right way, whatever that is. I mean, long term, there's there's no fighting the change that's happening in the country. It's just going to be it's just going to be um, you know a, a struggle for everybody to get there. Um, sooner rather than later. Ryan, did you did you want to add to the Michelle Obama answer, or is that really <laughs> um, your lifeline right now? No. I um, know you have a for real answer in addition to your oh, first for real, real answer. Crush on her. Yes, I do. Um, I think a lot of people who have been pretty dormant and going about you know their life and their work as usual have been just as shaken as as us and I think um, they are starting to take note and and be aware and be activated and I've seen it just through some of my social connections to people back in the Midwest or wherever um, who I haven't heard anything politically from until now and I feel that um, it is starting to get people out of their seats 
um, and do something with their work. And and I've received a lot of messages from these people as well, um, and from readers and um, non-readers, but fans and and allies, saying that my work in creating this magazine is more important than ever. And so those encouraging messages and little pep talks um, have been really encouraging, but they've also been really, um, they put a lot of pressure on and I feel that it can't be done in these small pockets of groups that have done it in the past. And it's great that you're donating to all the organizations that you're donating to, but you need to give your time and more. Um, and and I think that people will. It's happening. Yeah, and to go back to, um, you know, talking about art and design and some people saying art and design, you should turn to art and design right now, and some people saying you should organize. And I think um, each of us can, each of us has to ask, you know, what can I do right now? It's different for everyone um, someone might create art, someone might organize, someone might donate, someone might volunteer. And I think um, that we all have to just, just search search that out for ourselves and decide, you know, where to go from here. So, um, Koi and Ryan, thank you again so much thank you. for spending thank your you. evening with us. I was really looking forward to this tonight, to just being together with our community. I think... Um, and I know I'm going to just, I'm going to soapbox it for a minute, but um, my community, like the TGD community has meant so much to me. Um, oh my God, I'm getting emotional, you guys. Um, <laughs> it's meant so much to me. And I think now more than ever, um, my community is so important and being able to make meaningful work for my community um, and, and also to really champion kindness and equality and inclusiveness in my community, um, in the creative community that, that we serve and that, that we're a part of and that we speak to. It's, it's so important. And so I just want to let you guys know that that's something that is on our minds. And when you come to events or hang out with us online, wherever we are, like it is a safe space and, um, you are all, you are all welcome. And I'm so thankful. Ryan and I are so thankful for all of you guys. Um, being a part of our community. So um, that's the end of my soapbox. But um, I thank you guys. This episode was produced by The Great Discontent and me, Benjamin Welch, with sound mixing by Ryan S. Maker. The Great Discontent features conversations with today's artists, makers, and risk takers. You can learn more at thegreatdiscontent.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating in iTunes. It really does help spread the word. Thanks so much for listening.